Hi, Adam. My name's Neil, and I'm happy to be here with you. I'm happy to be here with you too, as well. And today is today we have like one of our really like our oldest touring friends, the best human alive besides Jesus. Like he's like number two in line for like the best human alive. Did you just say Jesus was alive? He is. Okay. I did just listen to the Joe Rogan podcast with the guy who was abducted. I forget it's something. I forget oh yeah, name. I watched that too. That was actually an incredible episode, and what a wild, what a wild experience. But Jesus might as well be alive. Yeah, true. Adam, it's my favorite part of the week. The patrons. It's my favorite part of the week too. We got two new patrons today. I think you know two is better than zero, and I'm just happy we get any every week. So thank you guys for joining us, Neil. I think you can get both of these names this week. Livy. And Ben. Ben, you said Ben is not a normal patron situation. Yeah, well, like our patrons at the start here are a lot of people who have never toured and want to get on tour. But we're hoping as this podcast continues, we can start to recruit some of our peers and touring members and other people who've been on the road. And Ben is one of the first people to do that. He joined, gave a donation per episode, and we, you know, he knows most of this stuff. He's just here to support. And hopefully we can get him on that Discord talking to some people, helping him out. But thank you so much, Ben. Appreciate you. And Livy, you're cool too. So it starts with a J and it ends with a Jordan Lovis. Yeah. He is an incredible merchandise manager that gives us so much insight into all the different aspects of being a touring merchandise manager, merch guy, merch person, whatever you want to call it. He tells us we can call him whatever we want. Yeah. Merch is the job on tour. Just to put it out there, plain and simple, they're the people who sell the t-shirts. And if the tour's really big, they're not the person who sells it, but the person who makes sure that they have enough t-shirts to sell at the place. They really just kind of like go in there and make sure any interaction with anyone in the venue or any merchandising company, they are that middle person. They kind of make sure that the t-shirts get from the factory to the truck, from the truck to the table, from the table to the person. They handle all of that. And that's why manager is in their title because they really are in charge. Yeah, merchandise manager. And I thought it was cool because listening to Jordan talk, I knew what he did, but I didn't realize how organized he was. It's so much. And on how on top of it he is. Like, I mean, we have been touring for what, like 15 years and probably 30 years collectively. Yeah, put them all together. He told us things that I never knew. And I'm like, how have I been around merchandise? I have actually done merchandise for a little bit of the time I was on tour just because when you're in a small band, you kind of do it for yourself. But he gave us insight into so much of this job that you never would see even if you lived and worked with the person hand in hand every single day. Yeah, and he started in a van, actually started in a van with you guys. Yep. And then worked his way up now to he did all of Travis Scott's Astroworld tour, which broke merch records at every venue it did. And that was that was him. He has been on the cusp of every big band as they were coming up. So like his first gig was Fall Out Boy. And obviously Fall Out Boy became Fall Out Boy. He worked with My Chemical Romance, Good Charlotte, and A Day to Remember. He's worked with artists like Run the Jewels, Travis Scott. Adam just said like that is the biggest selling merchandising tour on earth. Ever in this planet. And he did it. It was all under his control. He kind of gives a bunch of insight into what it means to do this job and how to do it on a very high level, very successful, very stoked that Jordan was able to come on and talk to us. His story is absolutely incredible. And I truly believe that everyone that, uh, that listens to this podcast will leave with a new appreciation of what that t-shirt means when you buy it at a concert. Yeah. So here we go. This is Jordan Lovis and he's absolutely incredible. Let's do it. Jordan, thanks for joining us today. No problem. Great to be here. Yeah. We usually just want to start off telling everybody how the hell we know each other. And I feel like you guys go back actually really far. Jordan let 
me and the band that I play with stay at his house when we tried out for Victory Records. In what year? Ah, uh, fuck. I don't know, like 2007 or 2008? Six, seven, something like that. It was like whenever Vice was still free and uh, you had copies of it in your bathroom and Alex would go in there for extended periods of time. And <laughs> Jesus Christ. Just look at the Vice magazine. <laughs> I don't know. And back when uh, Kevin was in a different band that would also stay at my place. That is how we met Kevin was your house. He, I told the story before, but he was like playing Guitar Hero in his underwear at your house for some reason. <laughs> and we walk in and we're like, hi, who are you? <laughs> yeah, I was like, man, you're going to be my friend. I can tell. Here, let me get my clothes <laughs> off too. This is really weird. I, I let me. I want to join you. Oh man! No, it was yeah. So you worked at Victory Records, right, Jordan? Yeah, I worked there in pretty much the whole calendar year of two thousand and five. I was already touring. Took that job for about a year, and then while well, I was touring with that job, and then was doing more touring with bands after that through you know present day pre COVID era. Oh, what a glorious time! I met Jordan through you guys, I think. I never met you like with anybody. Yeah, I met them through you guys. Because yeah. we, when we first met you, Jordan, we thought that your position with our band was unattainable. We're like, he works with huge bands like Fall Out Boy and uh, stuff like that. He, has, he owns his own house. He's way too successful to be working with a day to remember. Well, yeah, there, there were times where, where Jeremy would ask to work for you guys and it just, it wasn't in the cards. And then eventually it did work out and it's, it's great. That was when you probably met Adam, I would assume, was when you worked for us. Yeah, what was the first tour you did with a day to remember? So the first tour, I definitely just hopped in the van and hung out with you guys a couple mm. times. But the first tour was almost 10 years ago to the date. It was the European tour with Pierce the Veil and Bayside. Oh, oh, that tour was something. That was a fun tour. That was an, I, I didn't know that was your first tour with them. I remember that tour. That was a weird one. I don't know why it was weird, but it was weird. It was... My first tour with you guys, it was David's first tour with you guys, and maybe yours, Adam. Sal was tour managing. Not my first one. I just remember from that tour, Sal for David <laughs> on the radio. It was just like all Was that, that David happening. or Sal saying that? Sal. So he's like, Sal for David. Anytime he wanted to, him to do something physical, Sal would just be like, uh, David, could you come and do this? <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah, I, I, I did one other European tour with him prior to that. I didn't really, my first tour with him was a European tour, but it was that Bring Me. Oh, it was Bring Me, yeah, when we did, we played Roundhouse or whatever. Yeah, and it's funny because, Jordan, I thought you were going to say your first tour with him was the Antidote Tour, which is the tour that seems to be every other crew member's first tour with them in Europe. And they're like, oh, Adam, you're on that. And I was like, I didn't do this tour. Everybody thinks <laughs> But it's, I thought you were going to say that. It's going to be like, oh, of course. No, that was, that was like the third or fourth one. I remember meeting up at the Tesco, the classic Tesco where the bar, the bus parks below uh, in the garage. And there was just so much merchandise. You're just like out there and you're like, yeah, I just got to, you know, make sure all this merchandise is here. That was Quinn. That I think it happened more than one time. Oh, you guys did it multiple? I remember it. Oh, I have a photo of Quinn doing that. So that's why it sticks out in my mind. We had many a tour start at the Tesco. Real fast, can I just say that when Sal was TMing and I had to come out there with you guys for my first European tour, I don't think I've wanted to cry so many times in one day as trying to find out where this Tesco was without even knowing what a Tesco is. Because I'd never <laughs> been to Europe and I didn't have a phone and I didn't even know how to exchange money. And Sal gave me the worst directions. And dude, it was crazy. Touring back then was like the Stone Age. Dude, it was so hard. All right, you want to pay $85 a minute to use your phone or do you just want to like 
try and figure it out your best, it's like, uh, no, phone's not an option. Yeah. I know we touched on it a little bit, but Jordan, so how did you start touring? Was it through uh, Victory? What did you do? What was your journey? So the journey was probably the most organic, unsuspecting, just, I don't know how it happened, but essentially local scene in Chicago. I was playing in bands, going to shows. It was kind of like everybody knew everybody kind of thing. And a mutual friend with Fallout Boy kind of introduced me to them. This was local shows, no album out kind of situation. And, you know, it's like, you know, you're a kid, you want to go to the show or you want to pay five bucks or whatever. It's like, oh, I'll grab this box and walk it in. And that way you get into the show. So I'd essentially be helping them, you know, with merchandise and stuff. And it was nothing crazy because, again, it's a local band that, you know, you'd see all the time, multiple times a month. And so I'd help them out. And one day I remember Joe telling me, you know, one of the guitarists, he's like, oh, once you're old enough, we'll take you on tour. Thinking I was still in high school. This is a school (laughs) year. Not knowing that him and Patrick were still in high school. And I was like two years older and I was already out of high school. This was probably the fall of 2002 or maybe like the winter spring of 2003. Like how old do I need to be? <laughs> they, right. That, wow, I didn't realize that they were, how old are they? Are they like in their early thirties, mid thirties? So in two, th- I can't, I can't do the math offhand, but in 2002, Joe and Patrick were still in high school and Pete and Hurley weren't. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I'm like, oh, and I explained I'm already out of you know high school. I'm just doing you know community classes, not doing anything. And one day they called me up. They said, hey, we're in Cleveland, Ohio. We're going to drive to Chicago and pick you up and go on tour. And I had 24 hours to convince <laughs> my mom that, hey, remember those couple dudes you met from that band one time? They're going to take me on tour for two, three months. That's awesome. How did that go? What was your mom's response to that? She was, I guess, kind of okay with it. The one thing she was really focused on was as long as I'm back for my sister's wedding, which I knew I would be. Good mom. So yeah, I figured, hey, the worst case scenario, born and raised in Chicago, I've seen Milwaukee and I've seen Florida because my grandma lived there. So worst case, I see the West Coast, I hang out with my friends. And if it sucks, I come back. Yeah, that's cool. And it didn't suck. (laughs) Suck, it did not. I like touring. Fast forward 18 years, still touring. Yeah, they're still playing shows. They've been doing arenas, you know, for since 2005, which is insane. Yeah. It's like, so from the beginning, like how long did it take for them to like really be like, all right, it's not like, hey, you're a friend on tour with us, but it's like, hey, this is like a serious job. Was it like the first tour that you hopped in and you were like, man, I am, this is work? Kind of. I didn't know what to expect. So I'm like, okay. And, uh, the bands we were on tour with their people, their merch people have already toured. So they were kind of guiding me. And it was like, you know, it was no cell phone. It was, it wasn't a laptop and it wasn't spreadsheets. It was a notebook and a piece of paper and, you know, check marks and mm-hmm. t-shirts rolled up and taped. It was, yeah, yeah. you know, it was a, it was a learning process. And luckily as they grew, they were growing pretty exponentially as they grew. I was able to see the tasks and kind of, keep up with that flow it was you know it was like kind of being thrown into the fire where if you don't figure this out that's it yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, i was gonna ask i was like i feel like and neil you probably have experienced this from the artist level you know there's some times where your band or your career grows a little bit quicker than the people that work for you and i think people it's just growing pains you know you just have to cycle out a crew member might have a great relationship with them but they just simply can't keep up with the demands how much effort like, how hard was it for you to grow with them? I mean, that band grew fast, but 
I was able to keep up with it. I love a challenge. I'm, it was essentially, well, if I want to stick with this, I got to figure it out. So it was like, you know, personal motivation and just liking music and being part of that. I'm like, this is the coolest thing ever. Like every day was new. It's like still excited. Just, I want to figure this out so I could keep doing this. You say like whenever you, you guys were growing really quickly. And so as you were touring, you obviously toured with people that were headliners, right? Like people that closed the show, they brought the younger band out on tour and those merch people were, they kind of showed you the ropes. Like that's probably like free college. Oh, for sure. Unless it was playing with other, unless it was playing with local bands in the local band city, we were not the headliner. It was opening for, you know, early November, hidden in plain view, Rufio, Motion City soundtrack, like, you know, so it was just being around good people, people willing to figure it out, help you out. And yeah, got really lucky. I feel like that's how in that time frame of growing and learning in touring, it's like having those older bands to kind of look up to, regardless of like how well they're doing, you always have people who've done it longer than you. And we kind of talked about this with some other people that we've had on the podcast, but in those situations, they're the, the largest opportunity to grow. If you're willing to kind of put the effort in and ask the questions to people that have been around longer than you, you can learn so much without really having to go out of your way from doing your job already. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me that you said, you know, I was just really lucky. We talked a little bit about creating luck in prior episodes, but I mean, to an extent, like you had to make those decisions when those times presented themselves. For example, you know, going on tour and asking your mom to go on or learning every day. Do you think that like, I don't know, were there any times along your path where you wanted to stop or were you just like, I'm going to start touring? Like, did, is there a moment where you clicked? You're like, I'm going to do this for a living. Yeah. The moment it kind of clicked was a couple years down the road where, you know, you start out with your friends. That was the, that was the bridge, you know, it's like starting with your friends and then a couple years later, I was working for bands that I didn't personally know, where okay. it's like, hey, you know, we heard a recommendation that you're good for this. Like, could you tour with us? And it was to the point where I'm like, OK, people that don't know me want me to do this job for them. <laughs> I must be good. I must be doing something correct. I think that's another thing that you touch on that we really stress in the podcast is when you get good at this. I, I can relate mostly on a photographer level. It's like you're not asking people to go on tour with them anymore, they're asking you to come out. And that's when you get your bargaining power. And that's when you're able to get paid a good amount of money. And that's when you're like, all right, I'm in demand. That must've felt good. Yeah, it was great. It's, you know, word of mouth, it's you're growing. So you obviously want to level up your career with the artists that are leveling their careers up. It's like, cause as you grow, the opportunities also can grow as long as you're willing to accept that workload and that responsibility of like taking on these new skills. Cause I'm sure it's super easy to kind of just well, you know, we, we're going to go on tour in two months. I'll just hang out at home. But if like someone's hitting you up and like, hey, I have this job offer for you. Do you want to tour for this next month? It's going to be different than you've done before. You have to take those opportunities, I feel like. I agree. And I know uh, a lot of people that don't take those opportunities, you know, for whatever personal reason they have. But it's like, hey, if you really want to do this, you need to take that opportunity, whether you want to consider it a risk or whatever, and make it happen. There was you know, there's some stuff that doesn't go as well. And you either leave or you just do the tour and say, Hey, I don't want to do that again. You know, there's ups and downs with everything. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, it's cool to kind of know how you got started. I mean, I meet Neil and I both meet a lot of people on tour. And I don't know, you never really are like, so how did you get started? <laughs> well, I think that's the coolest part about this is because one of my favorite things about getting to interview 
friends that have toured with us or have we've met through touring is I know that there is no one way to success and everybody's path into touring or into the music world is so similar, but so different. You know, we all kind of start by going to shows. We all kind of do these different things, but it's like to hear exactly when that moment was or what you, what opportunity you were like, you know what, I can't miss this or I have to take advantage of this. Like that's the coolest thing to me. And I, and I kind of think, um, even though it's not that far, you know, in the, in the present nowadays, but now compared to at least when I started, it seems like it's probably a lot, I don't want to say easier to get on tour now, but there's, you have so many more opportunities. Like back then it was pre-cell phone kind of early internet days. So now it's like, people are just, everyone has access to email. People are just, you know, a message away on, you know, social media platforms or emails or whatever. So there's that many more opportunities. It's like back then you had to be at the right place at the right time. Now it's like, I can go find this person's Instagram account. They obviously are interested in this and they seem like a cool person. Maybe I'll ask if they want to go on tour. Right. Or maybe it's a band that's a state away versus I didn't know any bands from Indiana or Wisconsin. Yeah. You know, it's like, I just knew what was within the 30 minutes of my house. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about it again yesterday. It's like some of these things that are so obvious that you just don't even think about. That is the whole landscape of getting a job nowadays is different for it was like, man, you really have to know someone you're, you really have to be in the right place at the right time. And now you really don't, you just have to go out and put yourself out there and show that you're willing to do it to work. It's interesting to me because even though we have those tools to connect with somebody rather quickly, you know, they're not three people away. They're just one message away. I still think that the FaceTime being there in real life and doing stuff in person trumps everything. Like it just literally is better than everything still, which is interesting to me because some, you know, jobs aren't like that anymore. They've totally changed. And yeah, you can hit people up, but there's nothing like doing your job well in front of somebody else and them seeing that. I feel like that is like the ultimate, I will hire them. Well, yeah. And I don't think that'll ever change either. Yeah. It's like getting that face-to-face human response. It kind of like triggers the thing in your body to like, I can trust this person. I like this. You get those, those cues that are like, I like this. I like being around this. We've talked about it before. Again, you know, being able to be around someone and being able to hang out with someone and it being nice for everybody is worth so much. And especially in touring, it's like, Someone could be a little bit not, or they could be a little bit less qualified for a job and you like them, they're probably going to get the job. Yeah. A weird aspect of tour where it's not necessarily always about the literal job, but like how you do it, the way you do it, the way you interact, you know, it's, it's a lot of things that somebody may not think about like, oh, I could do this. I could string a guitar, but okay. What happens when a string breaks mid set and you know, whatever other factors you have that, that fight or flight and you're able to kind of handle those hectic situations with ease. And then afterwards, you're like, I actually still want to hang out with this person and don't want to kill them. It's worth a lot. All right. So let's move forward now to, you know, your merchandising manager or for short, people call you merch. Do you have any other names that people call you that are appropriate? <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. It's pretty, it's pretty standard merch, merchandiser, merch manager, if you want to get fancy t-shirt guy. T-shirt guy. <laughs> what skills do you think that like, I don't know if they came naturally to you or you got better at them, but what skills do you think are required or good to help somebody qualify to do this job? So probably the most important skill for merchandise, I'd say, is organization. You are in charge of a changing day-to-day, essentially, retail store. Mm -hmm. You need to know where all the product is. You need to, you know, have your accounting, handle the cash, handle the credit cards. You 
organize if you if you're not organized you're you're setting yourself up to fail and you know as the artist has more items you're more organized as far as implementing more items and implementing more stock more space people skills are a big issue because you're dealing with people whether it's at the venue or whether it's the fans buying the products people skills are essential and also i mean there's a lot of apps and programs and whatever that do it but Basic math skills are definitely helpful. You know, even if you type your numbers into a computer at the end of the night, you need, oh, this this person wants two shirts, one's 20 and one's 25 bucks. You got to realize that's 45, you know? Quickly too, like people are trying to move out of that situation as quickly as possible. It's like, I don't know, like for me doing math like that while people are like, hey, I need this right now. I'd be like, I don't know if this is for me. Adam's still trying to add it up. Yeah. He's taking the <laughs> shoes off. <laughs> I'm getting my calculator. I'm actually making a spreadsheet for it. He's making an Excel to do merchandise. <laughs> you know, <I'm> <laughs> <laughs> see, Jordan is so well versed in this. He can see it on your face. If I don't write stuff down, I'll forget it. When it comes to all of that stuff, organization, first and foremost, what are some other things that you would say you could not not do and have this job? <laughs> I could not not do have a massive beard, play guitar in a band. I didn't graduate high school. What are some skills you could have besides organization to really excel at this position? You know, people skills, math skills, common sense goes a long way as far as just life in general. You know, just just learning how to treat people, whether it's the crew, local or, you know, touring crew, other artists, crew. You know, it's it's communication. It's people skills, math skills. And again, first and foremost, organization. It's a moving retail situation where you are constantly talking to people all day long. Yeah, I think he said it best. I agree with you. It's a traveling retail store. So if somebody like in their normal life is like, well, I work at, you know, Zoomies or I do this thing and they're like, I want to tour, they'd probably be better at this than they realize they are. I think so. It's a lot of different stuff, but it's a lot of different stuff that you can you know, you really got to learn hands-on, you know, like a lot of touring skills, like a lot of stuff you've talked about, like you get the basic idea. And then once you're there in that situation, you adapt to that situation and take your skills plus what you just learned. And that's the job. Like we've talked about before, it's, it's all things that kind of are common sense, but you never really think to kind of put all of those things in a row and use them in real life. Like it, it really is easier than it seems. And kind of having someone to talk about that and show you and understand that you already have all these skills. I think that's, that's key. Absolutely. So on a very basic level, somebody's like, Hey, you know, I want to get into merchandise. They know that you sell shirts at the show. That's what you do. But can you explain, I know we've got into this a little bit already. Can you explain the other jobs that you kind of have to do all day, every day, not the specifics, just overwhelming. So sell shirts, you know, accounting, like you said, you have to be good with numbers. What else is there, if anything else at all? That's essentially the bulk of it. You know, it's, mm -hmm. you know, clearly like any other touring job, load in, load out. You know, you have the door time, bringing the product in the venue, having it organized, setting it up, and then selling the product is the bulk of it. And yeah. then, you know, essentially settling the show. After the show, you count back what you didn't sell. If you started with 10 you count back three, you sold seven of those, you know, and you, you'll most likely plug it into your computer or tablet or whatever, and it'll auto calculate. That's however many dollars and you sell the show and pack it up and do it again. Even as long as I've toured, I didn't really understand the idea of counting in until like I, we were on one of the last tours we did. I like went and hung out with Davey, our merch guy. 
And I was like, holy shit. Okay. I totally understand now, which is, it makes perfect sense. But it's like, I never was like, why do you have to count in all this stuff? And like, I didn't understand that, that it was just for, to create accountability between you and the venue. Right. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. Where, you know, you start with a box of a hundred shirts in the show, you know, you have a hundred and then the most efficient way, which people have pioneered way before I got involved in this is there's no point to keep track as you go. Cause that just wastes time. So at the end, you just count back what's left. And then essentially you're accountable for those units that disappeared somewhere between you bringing the product in and the end of the night. So do you have to like, those numbers all have to match up and then you have to have the money that makes sense for it. And then if there was like one of the band's friends, you gave it away, comped a shirt or something like that. All those numbers have to make sense. And then at the end of the day, when you count back that number, that is what it is, right? Exactly. It's okay. It's the most black and white, you know, situation. It's you had 10, you now have one, you have accountability for those nine that are not there. So before we get into what you do on a daily basis, do you think you could talk a little bit about how this job scales? So maybe walk us through like when you're in a van selling merch, what it's like, and then all the way up to how the job kind of changes, if that makes sense. I know you could go pretty deep on this, but on a very basic level. Sure. In a van tour, everything is going to be a small scale, the smallest scale probably. You wouldn't have that many items. Your sales would probably be pretty low unless you're Fallout Boy in 2003. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, it would be the same accountability. There's a lot of stuff that remains no matter what level you're on where there's still the same accountability you bring in. But instead of bringing in 100 boxes into the show, you bring in one box, you know, so you'd have less units, but still the same accountability. And then essentially, because if you're in a van, you're, you might be opening and you're only allowed to sell X amount of items. The headliner says we have 10, the main support has eight and the opener, which is you has four. But when you say items, just to clarify here, he's not saying four shirts totally he's saying four different designs, right? Correct. Yeah, you, yeah. you could bring in a hundred of your tour shirt, which is one design, yeah. one item. So as it scales up, you're probably going to have more items. In theory, your sales would be higher because you're, you're moving along the chain. And that's really it. As you scale up, you're probably going to have more of the venue sales, which is a, you know, kind of a, a different area, but you could have those on almost any level tour, but they, you might not have as many. So become more prominent or more normal as you get higher up. And I don't know if you want to give a quick run through of the difference between venue sales and what we're talking about for the most part here. We'll go in depth in it when we walk through the day, but if you want to just explain the definition so people know the difference. Right. So most time on tour, again, smaller scale. And as you work your way up, you will be the vendor. The person on tour that the artist hires is selling the shirts themselves. The accountability is all on them. And when you have usually it's larger venues, there's also some smaller venues that in the agreement that's already been agreed between the agent and the, the band's agent and the venue rep or whoever, the promoter, they say, this is a venue sell, which means you as the artist rep cannot sell the merchandise. So you facilitate the merchandise to them. You say, I have a hundred of these and the venue staff counts a hundred. They verify what you brought in. They will sell the product for you. And what I do throughout the day, depending on who it is, I will check up on them, whether it's face-to-face -face or text or phone call and see if they need more stock, you know, situations like that. And at the end of the day, after the show, they will count the stuff. You will verify their numbers at this point. 
and then you settle the show with them. Usually they take a much higher fee than you would if you sold. Those thieves. Yeah, I mean, it's just to find them for their work, even though you're there anyways. Yeah. <laughs> like they have to pay the person selling or whatever it is, whatever cost they're trying to make up or whatever. Is that solely just because they want to make sure the shirts sold are being marked down accurately? What is the reason for doing venue sales, you would say? Some of the smaller ones, I'm not sure why, but the larger ones, like, for example, if I'm with an artist and we're at Madison Square Garden, there's no way me being the one guy can sell merchandise to 25,000 people. Right. Okay. For that, it makes more sense. It could be a union situation at some venues, but bigger shows, it makes sense because, hey, they have the staff, you pay the higher fee because they're staffing it. They have more people to pay, et cetera. That makes sense. Jordan, you were in charge of merch on, well, behind you with the Astroworld tour for Travis Scott. How many different vending? I, I know that that tour sold more merch than like, it was just like an awesome merchandise tour, like such a cool concept. How many merch booths were there? Like how many places in the venue do you sell? So that tour was merchandise wise was single-handedly, no questions asked the biggest record setting, you name it, it happened. There were places where we had up to, I think, 13 different locations to buy the merchandise. In one venue? In one, in one venue, yeah. It was... Um, this one's in that guy's house. <laughs> that's when your title turns to merchandise manager, <laughs> when there's 13 <laughs> locations. Right. It was, you know, dozens, dozens of venue staff. Uh, it was me on tour along with two other people. So I was oh in charge my of my own staff, plus, you know, dealing with the venue staff. And it was uh, record setting, to say the least. You're basically a traveling district manager of a small retail chain. Like you have to deal with 13 locations every day. They did more sales in one night than like most stores do all year. They're like, yes, we did that. One thing I haven't mentioned before, but also that was a tour where we're receiving pallets and pallets. We're receiving half a truck of new inventory every day let alone the stuff that we're already carrying on the trucks. That was going to be something I was going to ask you. So in an average day, right? Do you take deliveries every single day? Are you taking shipments? Are you directly talking to the people who create the merchandise to bring that in? It depends on the tour. A lot of times you are not talking with the people that handle it. You will be talking with most likely somebody at the merch company. What You know, a lot of emails mostly, hey, I see you're running low on the tour shirt. We're going to send you three boxes. They'll show up in Phoenix, you know, on Thursday. And deliveries are probably, they're as needed. So every tour is dependent, but usually almost every tour is you're not receiving new product every day because you're carrying, you know, your back stock, if you will, your product you don't need for the daily show in a trailer or a truck or however you travel. Are you directly responsible for like kind of pushing those numbers to someone or is there like an interface that other people that let's say work for the artist or, or work for whatever is selling the merchandise, they have access to that information as well? Yeah, usually after after every show, I'll send them the show settlement. You know, it's via email and there's some apps that also do that or you could just do a spreadsheet depending on the artist, but they'll see those rolling numbers every night. So they'll say, all right, we sent you 200 shirts. You sold 20 at this location so that they could kind of plan ahead and know they could forecast what kind of deliveries you will need. So there, there's someone else that kind of is thinking about those logistics for you. So you're just out there kind of handling what is happening on the road. And then you have other people in certain situations handling those, those I guess, logistics 
for merchandise. Yes. Some tours, you know, depending on the deal with the artists, you might have to order the product, but generally somebody in the office takes care of that. Okay, cool. I guess on an average day, what does it look like for you? Like, like when you start, what are you doing? First thing, pretty much across the board on tour, load in. Usually um, for the for almost every tour, your returns from the night before will go on the tail end of the truck, trailer, whatever. So if they're the last on, they're going to be first off. So you might have to get your remains from the last show, bring that into the venue, put it in the merch area, and maybe wait an hour or two hours or whatever for all the other gear to come off. And then your stuff is going to be the very last thing because it doesn't need to move every day. The shirts that you get to replace the ones you sold last night for tonight are going to be after all the gear at the nose of the truck, which is the front. It's like a hurry up and wait situation. Exactly. So you might grab your couple boxes off the end, you know, get breakfast or whatever, do what you got to do, come back. Your stuff is accessible. You take what you need based off the numbers from previous shows. You say, okay, well, the trend is on this tour for every 1,000 people in the venue, we're selling 20 tour shirts, you know, five mediums, five larges, 10 XLs. So it's all based on the average. Right. This one is 5,000 people. So you're going to take those numbers, multiply them times five and bring in that stock. I mean, everybody has a different way to do it. I just like to go off kind of a rolling average. There's going to be situations you can't expect where, all right, in El Paso, Texas, everyone only bought smalls. So during the show, you might have to run out to the truck and grab more smalls because it's something you didn't expect. But next time you're in El Paso, you got a lot of smalls coming in. You know what's up. They grew up and they're going to buy mediums now. Oh. <laughs> There's no way to ever know what happens in El Paso. I've been to El Paso for an off day. It's an interesting city. It is. I spent uh, Thanksgiving there. Really? Yeah. Oh, one time. Not this year. Not this year. Well, th it hasn't happened this year yet. That is true. I keep forgetting that it's a new year. So it's like right after you get in, you kind of like restock everything for from the night before. You do this while you're setting up your merchandising station, I guess you would say. Yeah, what's it? Merch booth. Merch booth. Yes, that is exactly what it, it's called. Yeah. I mean, essentially, there's a lot of stuff where there's no there's no right or wrong way to do it between load-in and door time. Mm -hmm. You could set up your displays and then you could get some more stock that you need for that night or you could get your stock for that night and then set up your displays. What I like to do is take the couple boxes off the end, just depending on how much time is between that and getting access to what else I need to bring in. I'll set up the display, you know, to kill that time and make it useful. Grab what I need for that day, either talk with the venue at that point, say, Hey, I'm ready for count in if it's venue sells or kind of just have it set up and then chill on the bus or go for a walk or eat lunch or whatever until doors which then you really can't leave unless you got to use the bathroom or get more stuff. Yeah, you're locked in. Doors is your next, like, I have to do something when this happens, obviously. I mean, you have to be there to sell merch. So after you set up and before doors, is there anything else that you're like, this is on my to-do list? Or you're really just filling your free time with tasks that you have to get done eventually? Well, that's kind of what it is, is, is free time. Because okay. once doors hit, you're there's no free time. I think we talked to Charlie and Charlie was was saying like his personal time was in the morning because he didn't really get personal time any other time. So I guess for merchandise as well, like that's like your personal time. If you want to do something or go check out a store or whatever it is that you want to do in that town, that's your time to do it. Yeah. Morning or kind of probably late afternoon where everything's set up and you're confident enough to to the point where you're like, all right, I could leave 
for an hour or 30 minutes or whatever it is. And you're not going to come back to a disaster or yeah. somebody's not going to call you and say, Hey, why didn't you get this done or whatever? That's like the worst feeling is leaving venue. I get such anxiety because well, from a photographer, it's a whole different story, but even crew, it's like, if something comes up and you're not there now, it's your fault. And that's just the worst feeling. Oh yeah. There's been times where you go to get a coffee with another crew guy and one of you gets a call on the radio or a text or something. It's like, Oh dude, I got to go back now. And you're like, okay. I've had that happen so many times. Like you're like there, food just gets brought to the table or something. And they're like, I need to go like right this second. You're like, Neil, you're supposed to be on stage. Oh, <laughs> yeah. show's not happening. <laughs> Push it back an hour. Now with my, in my case, they're just like, we'll play without him. Turn the track on. <laughs> Can you imagine if you had a track that was just like a backup track for a member? They're late. You're just like, flip it on. I can't imagine. I'm sure people have that, right? Not from our band, but maybe others. So sound check there's not merchandise at sound check like what are you doing then is that just more free time yeah that's it's probably a time where you're eating dinner or you know just chilling so merch people kind of operate on their own schedule with the exception of a load in and doors everything else they're kind of just doing their own thing they're not working with backline techs or tour managers for the most part they're just doing them yeah it's kind of a an independent thing but you know you also like you're going to be co-mingling with the other bands merchandise managers on the tour you know yeah. you're going to say hey i'm set up this is my footprint you guys have to share the eight feet of space over here with the other two artists or you know you're not necessarily in charge of the other bands people but you know you you work alongside them and depending on your role in the order if you're the headliner you have you obviously have the most say or yeah. your main support you might have a slight say over the opener but I was going to ask, like, who delegates those types of situation? Like, so the headliners, merchandise manager kind of, hey, we're going to set up here and you guys can figure the rest out. Or is it like, hey, we're going to set up here and you sit up there and you sit up there? Yeah. So the headliner works with the venue and kind of knows the space needed. Hey, all five bands can't fit in this six foot by two foot blueprint. Do you have something else that would work for the first two openers? Because you never really want to... It's, it's kind of like leaves a bad taste in somebody's mouth if you have any band that's separate from the others. Because then it's like, mm -hmm. how are they going to find your stuff, especially if they're the opener? Because it's like, well, nobody's heard of them and they see everyone else's. They're not going to buy their CD because they don't know it exists. Yeah, that makes I sense. That. Sorry, William. No, I was just going to say, I could see that that would be kind of really tough in that situation. Does that happen a lot or is that like something that you genuinely try to avoid? Like that's a general thing that people avoid yeah people do avoid it some i mean venues are more accommodating these days well you know pre-covid as far as giving people enough space for merchandise because they know it is a it's a big industry and and they want to see their cut and they want to they want to keep bands happy i think for the most part which you know involves the crew the merchandisers everybody they want to keep fans happy they want hey i went to this venue and i was able to get a good view of the show i was able to comfortably purchase um, some merchandise if I wanted to, stuff like that. Rad. So you get it all set up, doors open, kids start coming in. Unlike everybody else, your job starts, well, not starts, but your true job, I guess you would say, starts right then. Like once doors are open, I mean, was that your busiest time or can you walk us through? Like, I guess that's all going to kind of go together, vending merch, if you want to talk us through how that works. You know, this is again, when organization is key, where you have your products organized the way that works best for you. You know, usually they're the shirts are flipped over boxes. Boxes are essentially open with the flaps tucked in the middle. Mm -hmm. So you have four sides and the space in the middle where you could essentially drape four different shirts over the sides and also have stuff in the middle, whether it's 
additional sizes or smaller items. So whatever works best for you normally, like when something's on display, I'll have this tie-dye shirt, I will have the product right below the display. So if somebody points to my left, hey, I want the shirt over there, I'll know that the shirt is actually over there. Yeah. You know, there's no point for the display to be over there and somebody points that way and you need to go the other way. You know, it's just, I mean, if it works for you, cool, but... Setting up for success intuitively. Yeah. So you're vending, you know, you got to be quick on your feet. You got to know your product. You got to know the fans. Again, like if mediums are the best seller, you want to have those the quickest available. You know, stuff like that where you learn. And again, that varies per artist. I like all these little tips and tricks you're passing off that are probably just second nature to you at this point, but come from, you know, like you said, 18 years on the road now. It's like, hey, this is how you lay them on your boxes. This is how you make it make the most sense. Those are things that people have to learn on the road. And just having these little pointers ahead of time are such a big help. Helps you struggle through the real things, not the things you can learn just by doing it right once. Yeah. When somebody first told me these things, I remember this dude, PJ, that was with early November. I'm just like, he's like, dude, you can't roll the shirts. You you should do this. And it's like, he probably saw the light bulb go off in my head where I'm like, (laughs) this is amazing. Why? You know, it's like, Nobody told me until they told me. Once you, once they do, you're just like, this makes sense. Why'd you roll them? That's the situation I came into. And that was just like, you saw one band do it and you're like, oh, we got to roll them and like write large on it. I'm sure Neil can relate on a band level. I'm sure they did a lot of stuff as a band that they were like, oh, we saw another band do it. So why wouldn't we? And then they got bigger. They're like, what the fuck? I remember when we first made merchandise, we just needed an easy way that we thought we could store more in a way that was easy to grab and says, oh, this says large without having to look for a tag. We weren't going to go into a venue and like set up a thing. We just had a box that had merchandise in it and you would just give it to them out of that. It wasn't more than that. Thank God we had someone who was much better at it than we were that kind of helped us. They took over and helped us. I mean, I don't know. Merch guys to me are the only person I can talk to that has contact with the band at a venue that can say, hey, I'm, I'm here to do the photo shoot after the show. And that's how I photograph Neil's band. So I went to the merch guy. Oh, it's the direct connection between the fans and the band. Like you can't just go talk to the guitar tech because he's on stage. Fun. Yeah. For a photographer, for me, who was like yearning to get anybody who knew the band. Jordan, you know Flip, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. So Flip is actually the first touring person who ever gave me the time of day when he was out with 30 Seconds to Mars in like 2005 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin at the Rave. I went up to him at the merch booth and was like, I really want to tour. Like, I want to do this. I was like, can I send you photos after the show? And can I talk to you and stuff? And he was like, sure. And he let me talk to him. And I was like, this is, this merch guy is awesome. And I took like his engagement photos. Like it's, you know, like I've known him for forever now. It's a direct connection. Well, that's the other thing too. I was going to ask you, you know, like you represent the artist too. Like how you are is directly reflective of who you work for. Like, so if you're out there and you're a dick, people are going to be like, oh, that band's kind of a dick. That's important, right? Like being nice to the customers or having like a good attitude when it comes to working and taking care of yourself mentally before the show, before the doors open. So when you go out there, you're like personable and friendly. Yeah, exactly. And that that's something that I wouldn't have even talked about because I don't, you know, it's, that's a natural kind of thing where you represent who you're working for. Because again, like you guys said, it's, you're the direct line of contact, you know, the guitar tech, whoever else could be you know, a loose cannon. But if nobody sees that, then they usually are. They don't know. Well, yeah, I didn't say that because they're not. Come on. <laughs> I wanted a believable example, Johnny. No, we don't have time for that. <laughs> I, I was just thinking about that too. It's like, there's been so many times where I have, when I was younger, like I just thought they are the band. 
you know, like even though they weren't, it was like if they were mean to me, I'm like, oh, they're just supposed to be because that's how it is. And then when they're nice to me, like it, I remembered it. I was like, oh, the merch guy for Silverstein was awesome. I love Silverstein. And I don't even know why it, it really does make a difference, you know? Absolutely. Well, it's that trickle down effect. You know, it's like if you're, you know, whoever's above you acts a certain way. Usually it's the people below them will act that way as well. And I think that generally bands who are nice and good people often surround themselves with crew that are nice and are good people. So maybe sometimes, it, you know, it is how the people are that you don't mean. I don't know. I'm not saying if you meet an asshole merch guy that the band sucks all the time. No. I love asshole merch guys. It's like going to Dick's Last Resort, like the restaurant. They're like, here's your shirt and get the fuck out of here, idiot. I'm like, sick. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> Slayer's badass. What's the, when you were selling, not venue sales, not Baltimore merch booths, like when you were just selling merch, obviously band goes unnamed because it doesn't matter, but what's the most quantity of shirts you've sold in one night? Do you have that number in your head? I don't have that exact number. <laughs> it... Ballpark. But Travis Scott sold. <laughs> Yeah. Skate and Surf 2004. I feel like we pretty much emptied a trailer, like a legit, oh my God, you know, van and band trailer full of merch where it was. That was Fallout Boy? Yeah. It might have not necessarily been the most, but I guess it was like the most unexpected. That's for sure. Where I had uh, one of my friends at the time just helping you. He, yeah, he was helping me. We were essentially by the time we ran a box up like 10 flights of stairs because that was like an old. I don't even know what the building was, but we played there one time and it was, I would not want to run merch up that building. This isn't the chance or anything. I don't know where skate and surf was. Uh, Ashbury park. Yeah. A stone pony near there for sure. So by the time him or I ran a box up and the other one was selling, it would, it would be gone. It was crazy. Like, so that was like the craziest because at that time for what you were used to, that show just kind of broke everything. Like your mind's like, wait, what we're still we just sold that box of merch. I just brought that up here. Yeah. It's, you know, a trailer full of merch that was supposed to be for a whole tour is gone at one festival. It's like, Oh my God. Insane. Grand arcade, Paramount theater, the boardwalk or convention hall. Pick one. The, are those the venues that it was hosted at? Yeah. 2004 convention hall, grand arcade, Paramount theater, the boardwalk, which one sucked. We had to walk up the stairs. I think it was a convention hall. There we go. It's kind of funny how how relative those things are. Like you're saying like you did merchandise for one of the biggest selling tours almost of all time with Travis Scott, but that's the one in your mind that really made a difference. It was all based on what you had done up until that point. You went into Travis Scott being like, this dude's the biggest artist in the world. Whereas like when you were on tour with Fall Out Boy and Surf and Skate, they're like coming up and they're still killing it, but it was probably mind bending. Right. When something, whether big or small, is consistent. You don't you don't realize the the size of it when there's an inconsistent, whether it's high or low. You're like, holy shit, that was crazy. Yeah, the magnitude of it becomes much more you know extreme when it's like, whoa. What did you do to recover from that crazy amount of merchandise? Like, was it at the end of a tour, or did you just have to like go to the next show and? We went home. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's the thing too is you don't ever want to have. I mean, you don't ever really want to sell it all if that makes any sense because you know that more can be made mm -hmm. you know or it's like at one show oh we sold out of everything in philadelphia but there's more in the truck so it's like why hold that you know for the pittsburgh show tomorrow when you could sell it today you mean you do want to sell it all oh you do want to sell it all i think you said you don't want to sell it all you don't but you do oh well now you've got me in a conundrum help me understand so you're saying you do want to sell it all because you want to make the money but you don't want to sell it out 
because you need some for the show the next day or you don't need some for the show the next day because they can quickly make you some? This The latter. You want to okay. sell as much as you can when you can. Okay. Mm. Tomorrow, the, the singer gets sick and you can't play the show. Or that day in the case of Neil's band. Or is that Glasgow? Yeah, it was Cardiff. Cardiff, yeah. We're two hours before the show. It can't happen. In those situations, at least you made the sales when you could. So it's like you never want to like plan for the rainy day because that day could be ruined as well. It's like you always want to just take advantage of whatever. That makes sense. And a lot of times, like in a lot of other situations, especially jobs and touring, you would save for a rainy day. You know, like you don't want to use all your packs of strings because tomorrow you might need strings. You know, it's like I guess this is one of those situations where you're like you have to get it when you can because you don't know if tomorrow there's it's outside and the place where you're going to sell merchandise, it's raining. It's like, we're not going to set up outside and sell merchandise. That's the exact, uh, that could sum it up in one sentence. Like you said, get it when you can. You sling merch. That's the term. Sling and merch. Sling and merch. Merch has been slung. When you sell merch in Georgia, you slang it. So you sell merch. I'll show. This is great. The end of the night. Band Finch is playing. Even when the show is over, you keep selling merch, right? That's pretty normal. Yes. The busiest times are going to be before the show is in, you know, like when doors open through the first band starting or even after that and then after the show because there's a lot of people that don't want to hold on to their stuff during the show. So after could be, depending on the band, the busiest time. Now you're done selling merch. What do you have to do at the end of the night? I know you have to load out. We know you have to put your stuff back where it came from, but what else do you have to do? So you need to count out. And that's this is kind of the fine line of you want to bring in enough for the show, but you don't want to bring in too much into the sense that you're taking two hours to count out what you didn't sell that you brought into the show. That is, you know, it's unspoken about until now, but that's really important because you want to be, you want to maximize the sales and be as, as efficient as possible as far as load in and load out. If you're bringing in a hundred boxes when you only need five, that's not efficient loading in and it's going to be just as non-efficient loading out. It's like when you pack a bag to go on the road traveling, you know what I mean? Or anything, you don't want to bring too much stuff. It's just going to cause you a headache in the future. It's just going to be a hassle. You know, it's going to cost you time and you don't have that. So you want to just bring it just what you need. Yeah, it's, it's merch is kind of like a uh, a chess game for cloth. Nice. Cotton chess. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to trademark that. I just thought of it. I already bought the URL. I have an audio to GoDaddy uh, or Google Domains uh, set up on IFT. Audio to GoDaddy? Yeah, I say a word with .com on it and then GoDaddy automatically purchases it for me. Yeah, it's a little program I set up. I think that in itself is uh, probably at least a fifteen to $2,500 idea. I'll take it. TLDR. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I guess another reason why you wouldn't bring, bring in too much is because it goes at the end of the truck and then you have to continuously unload that merchandise and you're slowing everyone else down for the next day too, right? Yeah, you're, you're screwing yourself. You're being inconsiderate of others. Just common courtesy. It's something you don't want to do. You're working together with everybody and it's like you piss people off. You're just going to have to live with them and hang out with them on the bus later. And then they're going to be like, man, you suck. Where's that red bearded guy? He fucked my day up. I'm going to fucking talk to him. I'm going to eat his pizza. <laughs> okay. Another question that people probably want to know. How often do you get fed pizza on tour? Too much and not enough. <laughs> oh, man. What was I going to ask? All right, cool. Well, we pretty much know your whole day. You do all that stuff. And then you obviously you have to do accounting and money stuff at the end of the night too, right? That's a big part of it. Yeah. So usually... You know, if there's slow times during the show, I'll count cash and kind of set it aside knowing what I have, you know, in a secure location, whether it's a backpack, somewhere where it's not accessible to, you know, fans and everything. And a lot of 
transactions now are credit card based. So there's usually less cash to count. And before I leave the venue, before I even settle with the venue, I make sure that everything matches up. I settle with the venue. I'll go to the bus or backstage. You know, I'll, I'll load out, go to the bus or backstage and send that email or report off to whoever gets it. Usually it's the tour manager, artist management, the merch company, and, you know, whoever else, maybe an agent or something. And they see that. So that way it's like I could go to bed knowing that it's not done. And I don't see an email first thing when I wake up and it ruins my day where it's like, where's the settlement last night? How'd you do? Yeah. And usually at that time, after I send out the settlement for that show, I like to get a jump start on the next day and kind of figure out, I'll set up the the spreadsheet for the show the next day and figure out what I need to bring in. I'll jot that in my notebook. And that way, let's say I, I wake up late or something like I already have that information, you know, is my brain still functioning? It's really all about being prepared, like kind of like not procrastinating, not waiting to the last minute. It's like setting yourself up for success always. Like you're trying to think ahead, like tomorrow is a 10 story load in up a 10 flights of stairs. You can't just roll in three minutes before load in. It's like, you got to think about that kind of, you stuff. must be in lacrosse. Yeah. Oh, the warehouse. What do those stairs say? It's like you're halfway to rock or some bullshit like that. You know what I'm talking about? When you walk up those stairs, there's like 70 stairs and like halfway up. It's like you're halfway to rock or some weird slogan. So you, it's a long way to the top. If you want to rock and roll, I think is a line. <laughs> I remember playing that venue and loading a 610 Mesa guitar cabinet, which is probably the heaviest piece of gear ever, up those stairs. It was awful. I know we didn't talk too much about venue sales. Did you want to add anything in there at the end when you leave with venue sales? Or are we good? So venue sales is kind of, going back to it now, it's kind of like kind of more work in advance where you're going to reach out to the venue before the show, you'll reach out to their merchandiser and you'll coordinate a lot before the day of show. You'll say, hey, this is what I'm bringing in a black tour shirt, whatever these sizes, this, this, and this. And you'll set up a time to meet them. Usually you would know where it is. It's usually at the merch area and you would meet up, you'd lay your stuff out. You know, you'd lay the same design, smalls, mediums, next to large, next to XL. You'd lay it all out on boxes or on the floor in the merch area. So they could easily count it and verify it. You know, you kind of work with them and make it easier for both of you. And then they count it, they set it up. It's you kind of babysit them. You make sure everything's all your items are hung up, they're displayed, the prices are correct. And then, you know, during the show, reach out, see if they need more stuff. And then after the show, you kind of wait on them for them to lay it all out. And it's just the reverse order. They count it, you verify their counts, and then you put it away. Roll it back. You gave me terms though before returns. Yeah. So returns are what's left from today's show that will go in tomorrow. I just wanted to get another keyword for the glossary in the podcast. You know, that's, it's a good word. It's a word everybody knows already, but in this context, it's probably a pretty important one. Yeah. It's a, it's a major key. I have a question for you, Jordan. So what is something that you learned like in your early days of touring and managing the merch that you still use, like on the biggest tour, like on tour with Travis Scott, what's like, what's something that kind of translates through all of that? Oh, that's a good question. I want to say everything. <laughs> <laughs> it just scales, you know, like any of the skills you learned on that tour, they're the same skills you're using to sell Travis Scott's millions and millions of dollars of merch, but it's just scaled larger. Yeah. If, if you could, if you could do a van tour, you could definitely do an arena or stadium tour knowing that the tasks are the same, but you know, more of them again, you know, instead of one box, it's 10 boxes and then it goes to a hundred and then it goes to, you know, a few thousand. 
It's like, so people that are coming in and like with aspirations to do tours like the size of Travis Scott, if they're really good at what they're doing in a van on a small bus tour, they can do those big tours just using the skills that they have as long as they're willing to kind of take on that elevated workload. Absolutely. You know, it's just about networking and building those bridges to get to those levels. Yeah. You know, it's chances of you going from a van you know, a, a club show in a van to an arena tour, whether it's a van or bus instantly, not very likely it does happen, but you know, you got to work your way up kind of like any other job. Well, as someone who would hire someone like that, it would make me feel less comfortable knowing this guy's only experience is selling merchandise for someone in a van or in a, like a house of blues size tour. I would need that assurance because they're working with so much of your money and so much of your product that they're accountable for. Right. And it says, um, your responsibility goes up. So, you know, cool, you can be responsible on a van tour, but you don't have anything else that says you'll be responsible for something that's a thousand times, you know, that's a thousand times more of a responsibility. Yeah, it's it's one thing to carry $100 in your pocket. It's another thing to be carrying $100,000. You know what I mean? Like that's a whole nother level of... Oh, I have a question. And I don't know if this is going to be as important after COVID, but if you are rolling around with $100,000, what do you do? Like, do you just put it in your bank account or like what... Where do you go after the venue? Because I just want to come meet up with you real fast. <laughs> no, I'm being serious. It's like, like thinking about it, like, what do you do? Like, I don't know. I don't know what the, if you like, what do you deposit money weekly or how does that work? A lot of artists are different as far as when it comes to, you know, merchandise cash, what they do with it. There's a few situations. One of them is going to be that you settle it with the tour manager where it's like, Hey, you know, got your email. It says we should have $5,000 in cash. You go on the bus or in his office, whatever, her office, you count out the cash with them. Usually you would want to get a receipt just in case, let's say the dude goes crazy and whatever else you want to have a track record, you know, just get a little receipt book. You say today's date, I gave Neil $5,000 and then Neil signs it and I have the receipt. I give you a copy knowing where that went. Um, there's some other situations if you're it could be working for a band or a merch company that they want it deposited. So maybe on a day off or, you know, if you have some time in the afternoon one day, you go to the bank and you deposit for them. And then you just email them the, the deposit slip saying, hey, I deposited $5,000 for the show in Memphis, Tennessee. It's like because until you get that signed off, you're responsible. Absolutely. It's a big responsibility, whether it is a box of shirts or physical cash, that is all money, you know, property responsibilities that you're responsible for, but is not yours. Right. You know, the, the band paid for this stuff. The band expects to be paid for this stuff when it sells. I always wondered that. I'm like, in my head, it's like, yeah, they, he takes all the money and he has the money. I'm like, where does it go? I just have like flashback memories of warp Tour specifically where there's always like a certain amount of time where I'm not allowed in the back lounge because it's the merch guy counting money. Or depending on the artist I'm with, I am allowed and they're just like counting it. And I'm just like, there's a lot of money right there. <laughs> it's just, or they have like a money counter and it's usually them and the TM, like you're saying, settling. I know warp Tours are free for all, but. I have another question for you, Jordan, before we wrap this up. As the world has changed with COVID, how do you see what you do changing? That's a good question. I've seen a lot of people kind of speculate what would happen. And I don't see much changing, if anything, in the sense of, I feel like, my job won't come back until it is safe to come back at the level where it was pre-COVID. Okay. But you're not going to handle cash, though. Like, I would assume that the credit card sales would be much higher 
of a portion of what income would be. Yes, over the, even over the past few years, credit card sales have definitely increased, and sometimes they even outweigh cash sales. A lot of times they do. You know, it's easier to take a credit card more than ever. There's all these apps and platforms and little machines. You know, people are used to carrying less cash on them. And yeah. Is that something that you provide or is that something that the artist would provide for you? Usually the artist or merch company provides the point of sale system for you to take cards. It's not going to be something personally that you would have yourself. Okay. And one final question. Do you wear shower shoes? <laughs> um, you know what? I am going to I'm going to say that I am one of the few that doesn't. No, that's the majority. Is it? Yeah. Based on our experience, which might be high variance because it's not a huge number, but yeah. I mean, I, I consider myself to be a pretty clean guy, and there's a lot of tours I forget to bring sandals. I'm I really don't like sandals in any circumstance. <laughs> Me too. So I'm usually not. I forget them at home because I don't know where they're at. No, not only are you no shower shoes, you're no sandals. Get out from between my toes. <laughs> I can't wear thongs. You know what I mean? Not on your feet. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, well, of course. Other places. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's I mean, thank you so much for your time. That's pretty much all we had for you. I actually learned even more. I know there's still more. So for me, it's like we've toured for what, like 15, 16, 17 years. And I've never fully understood all of the responsibilities, all of the I guess it really is just responsibility that you take on being the merchandise person. You all everyone that we've had the pleasure of working with has made it look kind of easy. And I just assumed that you guys were all just badasses, which is the truth because there's so much to it. It's like such a, it's a job that like, I think most people start off, they're like, Hey, here's our friend. We really like having him on tour with us. And then when you get to that level of it being a job, it's such a huge responsibility. It is. And I mean, if, if you're the right person for the job, you're kind of, it's second nature. Like even stuff that you guys pointed out that I didn't realize is like a bigger deal is just, it's second nature because that's what you do. You know, you don't realize it would take longer for you to teach somebody how to do it than you to do it because it's like, you know, you know how to play a chord. Right. That makes complete sense. Like teaching someone who's good at music how to play music rather than they just know how to play it. Literally what you just said is the reason I love teaching because in order to teach, you have to go back to relearning all the things you forgot you had to learn. And it gives you like more of a respect for people that do it and you get so much better. So I, I don't know. That's why I love this podcast. We get to learn a lot of stuff. Yeah, I almost... I guess probably if it wasn't for Follow Boy, I was on a path to become a teacher. You're good at it. Yeah, you are. Well, thank you, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> I watched your videos you sent to David. You are a really good teacher. You're teaching the youth. Did you, did you watch them? I did. I watched a couple of them. Cool. Well, thank you so much. I don't know. I don't have anything to say in conclusion other than this was awesome. And I fully expect to be able to come to the next Travis Scott tour and ride all the carnival rides for free. I might know somebody that can make that happen. I hope somebody took away some good things that uh, that they could learn and hopefully be on the road and use in real life. Yeah, we're going to get people on the road as your interns. You just wait. Thank you, Jordan. That was awesome. All right. So, Jordan, say it in your words. Take us away, Kevin Scott. Well, Kevin, you know what to do. Play those chords, baby. Yeah. <laughs>